There we are. The season that we find ourselves in um, is the Easter season. Easter is not just a day for us, but it is a season that we find ourselves in that will take us up to Pentecost. Uh, I, I wanted to do something. Uh, the lectionary for this season takes us in various passages in the book of Revelation, but between you and me, I didn't, I didn't really like the way that it picks certain texts, and so I thought, well, let's Let's explore the book of Revelation together. And so we're going to begin today in chapters 4 and 5, and then we're going to move forward um, to some key texts for the next seven weeks. And that's in part why we're doing the Wednesday night study as well, um, because we can't hit all of those on Sundays. And so we're going to go back to some of the places that we skipped on Wednesday night and, and have some time for discussion. And those of you who are with us online, uh, there will also be a, an online uh, option and course available as well on Wednesday. So I'm really looking forward to this and thinking about what it means uh, to say that the, the Lamb is the light of the city, as we find out at the end of Revelation. But this morning, um, I want to begin at chapter 4, and that's not uh, because chapters 1 through 3 aren't important. Uh, in fact, they, they really are, and someday I want to come back to chapters 2 and 3 and think about the letters written to the seven churches that we find in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. But it's really the vision that takes up the bulk of the book of Revelation begins in chapter 4. And this morning, I, I want to think about two chapters. So I'm going to invite you to remain seated this morning as we look at chapters 4 and 5 together, because it's a fairly lengthy passage of Scripture, but it's connected together. And I want us to hear it this morning. So here's Revelation chapters 4 and 5. After this, I looked, and there was a door that had been opened in heaven. The first voice that I had heard, which sounded like a trumpet, said to me, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once, I was in, the spirit, was in a spirit-inspired trance, and I saw a throne in heaven, and someone was seated on the throne. The one seated there looked like jasper and carnelian, and surrounding the throne was a rainbow that looked like an emerald. Twenty-four thrones with twenty-four elders seated upon them surrounded the throne. The elders were dressed in white clothing and had gold crowns on their heads. From the throne came lightning, voices, and thunder. In front of the throne were seven flaming torches, which are the seven spirits of God. Something like a glass sea, like crystal, was in front of the throne. In the center by the throne were four living creatures encircling the throne. These creatures were covered with eyes on the front and on the back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like an ox. The third living creature had a face like a human being, and the fourth living creature was like an eagle in flight. Each of the four living creatures had six wings, and each was covered all around and on the inside with eyes. They never rest day or night, but keep on saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is coming. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to the one seated on the throne who lives forever and always, the 24 elders fall before the one seated on the throne. They worship the one who lives forever and always. They throw down their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power because you created all things. It is by your will that they existed and were created. But then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one seated on the throne. It had writing on the front and the back, and it was sealed with seven seals. I saw a powerful angel who proclaimed in a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or look inside. 
So I began to weep and weep because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look inside it. Then one of the elders said to me, don't weep. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has emerged victorious so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Then in between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as if it had been slain. It had seven horns and seven eyes, which are God's seven spirits sent out into the whole earth. He came forward and took the scroll from the right hand of the one seated on the throne. When he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each held a harp and gold bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. They took up a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain and by your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe, language, people, and nation. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they will rule on earth. Then I looked and I heard the sound of many angels surrounding the throne, the living creatures and the elders. They numbered in the millions, thousands upon thousands. And they said in a loud voice, worthy is the lamb, worthy is the slaughtered lamb to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. I heard everything everywhere say, blessing, honor, glory, and power belong to the one seated on the throne and to the lamb forever and always. And then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Uh, this is the word of God for the people of God. So, am I, am I on now? Oh, I'll just use this. No, you want to use both fingers. No, I don't want to get undressed in front of everybody. Um, <laughs> so this morning, I, I want us to think a bit about re Revelation. And I know that at times, Revelation can be kind of a, a scary, threatening, kind of avoided book. And as we begin this journey together, I want to say two or three things about it. That as we study this book, part of the problem has been the way that this book has gotten used. It really began probably around the Middle Ages where certain interpreters and scholars began to be frustrated with rulers and authorities, both in the church and in society. And the book of Revelation and its beast that we will come to, especially around the 13th chapter or so, became a wonderful place to talk about people you didn't like and say, I think they are the beast from Revelation chapter 13. And if you can name them as the beast and they can become the bad guy, we can become the good guy. And that began a kind of process that, that caused some in the church then to begin to say, I'm not sure Revelation is helpful. It's actually pretty divisive. And these multiple interpretations of Revelation actually aren't helpful to anybody at all. In fact, interestingly, um, the theologian John Calvin, uh, during the Reformation, wrote commentaries on every single book of the Bible except Revelation. And it's not because he died before he could get to the last one, but because he just felt, thought it was unhelpful. And so for a lot of us, we've treated Revelation as unhelpful. And if you grew up in church like some of us did, especially through the kind of late 60s through the 70s and 80s, there's a way of teaching Revelation or thinking about this kind of literature in the Scripture that really is actually fairly new. It started in the middle of the 19th century. 
And some folks began to think, I think God kind of acts differently in different time periods. It's what's called dispensationalism, that there are dispensations where God has acted in different ways and began to take all of these texts and kind of put them in a blender. And they came out with a kind of scheme of history that, frankly, in the 19th century, folks kind of went, oh, that's pretty sad and unhopeful and not really helpful, fairly speculative. Folks began to kind of put pieces together and come up with dates when Christ would return and sit on a mountain and he didn't show up, and that wasn't helpful. But then we had a couple of world wars and some pretty broken things in the 20th, early 20th century that began to cause people to kind of read it in that way. And so a lot of us grew up in an era where uh, when I went to camp, there were always end times movies uh, that I joke. If they couldn't get you to the altar the, the, that way, they could scare you there um, by the end. Some of you have read the Left Behind series or some of those books that really are rooted in that kind of theology. And I want to say, first of all, in the Church of Nazarene, we, we have a fairly broad tent about these things. Uh, we have a statement basically that says, we believe Christ will return and renew all things. And we kind of allow differences. And so let me say, you can be a Nazarene and hold to that kind of thing. But I will unapologetically say, you and I can argue later, we'll still be brothers and sisters. But I will say, I don't think it's a very good way to read Revelation. It's very unhelpful. And so I'm going to say to us that as we read Revelation together, there's two or three convictions that I think are essential to us. The first is this. I'm going to assume that the book of Revelation was kept, not because the early church read it and said, I have no idea what this means, but about 2,000 years from now, there will be people with decoder rings that will be able to kind of figure out what these mean, and we'll, we'll hang on to it for them. And so we're going to study it as though when the first people who this book was addressed to read it, that it actually kind of made sense. Now, certainly, because of the language, there were still mysteries and things involved. But we're going to think about what, what did this mean to the first century? And if we can understand what it kind of meant to the first century, maybe then we can understand in part what it means to us in the 21st century. The second thing that will guide us is a particular understanding of what is called apocalyptic language. What we're dealing with in the book of Revelation, we get a little bit of it in the book of Daniel, maybe a little bit in the Gospel of Mark, and, and maybe a couple other places. But Revelation is apocalyptic language. An apocalyptic language is meant to do something. And I have a couple of illustrations. I think there's going to be some pictures that will help me here. But the first is, I don't know if you had to do this when you were a sophomore in high school, but I had to read George Orwell's Animal Farm. Do you remember that book? Now, you can read George Orwell's Animal Farm as a story about animals on a farm. It's not a very exciting book if you read it that way. But Orwell wrote Animal Farm as a way of critiquing the politics of his day and talking about certain powers and political ideologies and making them into kind of animal groups. And in the story, he was able to expose some things about the inner workings of principalities and powers, if you will, that we may not have seen if he wouldn't use those images to illustrate them. Another way to think about this, if you are a fan of Disneyland, which I know my kids are, um, there's a ride at Disneyland called the Haunted Mansion. You go into it, and there's this room that stretches that has no windows and no doors, right? And, you can, and then you finally get out, and you, you got to get in line to get on the carts to take you through the ride. But as you walk through, there's a, a kind of picture gallery. And when you look at the pictures, at first, on the left, it looks like a kind of Mona Lisa, Disneyized Mona Lisa picture. But when you move just a little bit, all of a sudden, she, uh, she turns into a hag. You look at the 
you know, that, the picture of the house, but then you move and it becomes the haunted mansion, the ship that becomes the ghost ship, etc. And apocalyptic language, I would argue, is primarily meant to do this. It's meant to give us a pair of glasses that allows us to look at the world around us that we've gotten so used to, we don't even pay attention to it. It's become like the air we breathe. There's an old joke. It's not a joke because it's not funny, but a philosophical story about two young fish swimming by. And an older fish swims by and says, how's the water today, boys? And as the fish swim by, they look at each other and say, what's water? Right? That we get so used to the way things are that we need somebody to say, oh, by the way, you're living in water. And apocalyptic language allows us to put on a pair of glasses. I'll give you the great example. It's going to ruin a sermon later, but that's okay. There's an image that we see oftentimes in um, archaeology about first century Rome. There's an image of the goddess Roma, and Roma sits on a couch, and she offers to Roman citizens a cup of life. She's a goddess. Now, we're going to discover in Revelation there is not a goddess, but a harlot, And she also sits on a couch, but she doesn't offer to people a cup of life. She actually offers this really disgusting cup that will bring death. So you don't have to be a great scholar to kind of go, John the Revelator is helping us put on a pair of glasses that says we're used to this goddess, this nation that offers to us all sorts of ways to find life. But when we put on the glasses of Revelation, we realize, oh, that actually isn't giving us life. That's actually giving us death. Are you with me? And so we're going to think in that kind of way. But lastly, and this is really important with regards to apocalyptic language, the purpose of apocalyptic language is not just to expose this life that we live in that we don't even realize we're living and being shaped by, but it's also meant to be a form of hope. So we assume that John the Revelator, who writes Revelation, historically we associate that with John the Apostle who wrote the gospel and a couple of epistles. But we know this about John the Revelator. We know that He is in exile on Patmos and probably is at a time where many of the apostles have been martyred. If we take the seven letters in Revelation 2 or 3 seriously, as he looks at the churches in Asia, two of them he's happy with, five not so much. And probably getting towards the end of his life and wondering, what have I given my life to? Is this going to work out? Is this good to be part of the church or have I given myself to something that's going to fade away? Now, I I don't know if you know this. Those of you who come regularly probably are used to the word exile by now. But the people of God often find themselves in exile in Egypt. But in particular, especially in the Old Testament, this image of being in exile in Babylon is so strong. And as I have said to you before, The reason Babylon is such an important image, and we'll see Babylon over and over again in the book of Revelation, I think the reason Babylon is so fascinating to the imagination of the scriptural writers is because Babylon is not just a place that oppresses us. In fact, if we take the book of Daniel seriously, they viewed it not so much as a place of oppression, but a place that allures us. So I've said this to you frequently, but people who live in Babylon, their primary fear is this— Not that Babylon will come knocking at their door and kill them for being Christian. That's not the fear when you live in Babylon. The fear when you live in Babylon is one day you will wake up and your children don't care about this anymore. 
that you'll wake up one day and your children, who you were trying to raise as particular people in the culture, have now just become, as I like to say, they're no longer the people of God living in Babylon. They're now Babylonians who come to church with you on occasion. That the problem with Babylon is it draws us in, it lures us in, and that's why we need language to kind of clear, shock us into saying, oh, wait a minute, these things that are pulling us in are actually not giving us life, but giving us death. You with me? And so that's the way we're going to think about Revelation and, and try to interpret this apocalyptic language that way. And so this morning we begin this vision to a people in exile, which I think resonate deeply then with us in the 21st century. It begins with a vision of a throne room. Now I love this image. John, who's who's just written a letter to Laodicea and said, the problem with you guys are you're so self-satisfied you're having church and you haven't even invited Jesus in. He's knocking at the door. If you would just open it up, he would come in. Church would go so much better if you had Jesus involved in it. Unfortunately, you're so healthy and you have so much prosperity, you don't even need him. But John, in a sense, opens that door and here's what he sees. And I have another image. Um, the image that I always think of when I think of this text is the image of uh, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. This last summer, I decided to reread the Chronicles of Narnia. It's been a long time. Um, but there's this, that amazing moment, if you're a fan of the Chronicles of Narnia, where Lucy opens the wardrobe, and she steps in, and she sees Narnia. And there's so much I want to say about this, about after having read the novels, how how important it is when Lucy and the other kids step into Narnia, but then how it shapes how they go back into the old world too. But this morning, I just mostly want us to think about, this is kind of the image. It's not, and this is the important part, it's not that John gets into a kind of first century rocket ship and goes off, off to some other place. What happens is, is as though there's a door right here and you open it up and he steps through and all around us this morning is the throne room of God. Not far off in some distant place, but right here, as near as our next breath, if we could just find the door to open it up, we would see that there is a throne room. Now you're not very excited about that. Wake up, it's a little warm in here today. And he steps into that, and like Lucy and Denarnia, sees this powerful thing happening. This place where God reigns, if you will, it's the control room of all history. And I think I have an image of the throne room there, but at the center of this heavenly realm, there is a throne and there is one seated on the throne. And it's fascinating the language that is there. For in the language of Revelation, the one who is seated on the throne, we never really get a particular picture. One problem with some of the pictures of the throne room in Revelation 4 is we get an old guy with a beard sitting on the throne. That is not the vision John gives. In fact, he can't describe exactly the one seated on the throne. He can only describe, there's a word in Hebrew, kavod. It's the word for glory. It means kind of heaviness or weightiness, the fingerprints. He can only describe the, the kavod, Yahweh, the fingerprints of the one seated on the throne. And it's wrapped up in language of Ezekiel 1. And it's wrapped up in language of Sinai. It's, it's peals of thunder. It's smoke and clouds. It's, it's emeralds. It's radiating God's glory from the throne room. By the way, I, I will oftentimes reference, and I would encourage you if you're interested in the study to go to Ezekiel 1 this week because Ezekiel 1 and what John is writing in 4 and 5 are so similar to each other. I, I will talk frequently over these next few weeks that the book of Revelation we ought to think of is almost like a, a mural painted on a wall, but the paints that are being used are the language and the words of the prophets. 
It's as though the revelator just grabs Ezekiel and Isaiah and grabs Daniel, grabs all these prophetic languages, throws them on the wall, does this beautiful thing with them. He's doing that with Ezekiel in this text. But around this throne, there are 24 elders. This is one of those images in Revelation that's probably pretty easy to decipher. Whenever you see the number six in the scripture, it's incomplete. Whenever it's seven, it's complete. Whenever you see 40, it's a long time that's going to change us. When you see 12, it's usually God's people. And so it's likely that the image is the 12 tribes of Israel, all that God was doing in the old covenant, and the 12 apostles, all that God is doing in the new covenant to bring the church in its totality together, the 24 elders, the church gathered around the throne. You get these four creatures borrowed from Ezekiel chapter 1. One looks like an ox, a domestic animal. One looks like a lion, a wild animal. One looks like humankind. One looks like birds. It's possible that the image here is it's not just the church, but it's actually all creation gathered around the throne, worshiping the one who is seated on the throne. It's this powerful picture. It's this powerful song. Worthy is the one who is on the throne. And let me say, part of the reason I think this text is so important is because it reminds us that every week we gather together, we are stepping through that door and entering into that throne room. I was talking to a friend about this this week. One of the fun things, interesting things about living this far west is just this sense that this morning, which is already evening for so many of our brothers and sisters in the world, that they got up way before us, entered the throne room, and began worshiping. And it's as though time zone by time zone by time zone, the sisters and brothers of Christ have handed the baton of worship on to us. And so worship doesn't begin at 1045, which by the way, it does begin at 1045. Worship doesn't begin at 1045 in Nampa in this building. Worship is going on all the time. But at 1045, we get to step through that door and enter into the throne room and worship the one who is seated on the throne. And here's why this is so important. Because every week, you and I are being reminded of something that's very important. We are not on that throne. That part of what happens to us today in worship and why I think it's such an important regular practice in our life And maybe you're a better person than I am. You're not. But maybe you are. (laughs) Maybe you don't need to be reminded that you are not on the throne. But I am what I like to call a navel gazer, and I I won't show it to you this morning, but it's right here. It's the center of my being. It oftentimes is appetite-oriented. And I can begin to think this is the center of the universe. Actually, Paul calls it, our God is in our belly. That I am the center of the universe. And by the way, in the American church, we sometimes convince people that this is true. I was in a Sunday school class this morning talking about this, that that one of the interesting things about American Christianity is when you think about how the Enlightenment impacted Europe, Europe kept a kind of state church model and largely Christian faith has really struggled on the European continent. America, though, also shaped by the Enlightenment, the church has thrived in, in many important ways in, in America. But church historians would say the reason it has thrived is because in the separation of church and state, we allowed the church to be shaped by capitalism and by marketing. And so part of what has kept American Christianity alive certainly is the Spirit of God and the power of God at work in us, but it's also been that we are con- competitors with the churches in the neighborhood. And so we're constantly thinking about how to be more relevant to you, how to make your children more happy, 
thinking about programs to constantly dry, draw you in, which is wonderful and has kept the church alive, but it oftentimes then has created American Christians who think the gospel revolves around them and that they have a story, and thank goodness they've added God now into that story. Revelation chapter 4 reminds us it is not our story, it is God's story, and the power and beauty and richness of our story is when we gather around those in the throne and realize that our story is caught up in God's story. How oh, it's worth an amen. Oh, I'm working hard up here. Mike's not working now. Like, come on. Sweating. And so in chapter 4, we're reminded in that throne room that there is one seated on the throne. Then we get to chapter 5. There is a scroll in the hand of the one seated on the throne. It has seven seals. I think I have a picture of it. It's a powerful image. Likely the image is this. It is the narrative of history. Will history end up the way that God wants it to go? And the problem that John seems to see in Revelation chapter 5 is this is not going very well. The church is being persecuted. Many of the churches seem to be falling into brokenness. Come on, folks, look at our world today. People being killed, exiled. Power plays and brokenness, division, dispute. Not just brokenness out there, but brokenness in our own lives. It's no wonder that the revelator begins to weep and cry because there's no one, and this is so important, there's no one worthy on heaven, in, in the heavens or on the earth or under the earth, even in the seas. No one. Search. There's no one worthy who can open those seals and make sure that, that things go the way they're supposed to go. And this is a very important affirmation, brothers and sisters. There's no candidate you will vote for. There's no party you will belong to. There is no job that you will have, no institution you will join. There's no political scheme there's no technology we will invent. There is nothing that is worthy that will get things to go the way they're supposed to go. So weep. Because if this is dependent upon us, as Paul said last week in our text in 1 Corinthians, we are hopeless. But the elder says, don't weep. For there is one who is worthy, who can open the seals and unroll the scroll. Now here's my favorite part. John hears actually something out of Genesis 49. The lion of the tribe of Judah. When Jacob blessed his sons, he said to Judah, you're a, you're a lion cub, but someday the scepter will be with you. There's a lion of the tribe of Judah. He has conquered and he can open the seal and unroll the scrolls. But here's the key thing. He hears that. We'll come back to this because we'll see it two or three times. He hears lion, but then he looks and what does he see? He sees a lamb that was slain. It is the lamb that can open the seals and unroll the scroll. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. This is such an important image, and I think even if you skip the next six weeks, if you get this, you'll get so much of what Revelation is trying to teach us. The lion is the lamb. Every time we hear lion, we think lamb. Because it is not ultimately 
through conquest and power. In fact, it's so interesting, even in this text, when, when powers came in to conquer another, oftentimes what they would do is bring their gods with them. And when they conquered a people, now they would be excluded from worship and they would only be given the menial task. They now would become the slaves of that empire that conquered. Here's what the lamb does. When the lamb wins and brings all people unto himself, think about what the text does. They get dignity. They get a new life, a new creation, white robes around them. They are drawn into the worship not excluded, but included, and they have crowns on their head. They are now given authority to have dominion the way we were created to have it, for our lives to have purpose and meaning and goodness and richness as we partner with the Lamb in His redemptive work. But here's the key. It is ultimately this image of the Lamb, of self-giving love, that is drawing all things to its glorious conclusion. We've talked about this a bit in the past. But I'm convinced that when that scroll is opened, it is not a predetermined script that you and I are then living out. So we live our lives, and when bad things happen, we wonder, why is God doing this to us? Or when good things happen, we think, wow, we must be really good. It is not the sovereignty of God's power that is at the throne. Sometimes we Wesleyan types love to call it the sovereignty of God's love. The image is that the Lamb is out in front of us, drawing us to the purposes of God. Oftentimes taking the very broken and damaging things as we've celebrated during the Lenten season and joining us in that brokenness, meeting us in that shatteredness, drawing us out of that into health and wholeness. Constantly taking even the pieces that we have broken ourselves and trying to weave those back into a tapestry or mosaic of God's grace and mercy and goodness. And so John can now look at the things going on and not say, well, it's God's purpose for all of this to be a mess. But now he can look and say, oh no, sovereign love is still at work drawing the people of Laodicea and the people of Sardis and these churches and God's people back to his purposes. And we can trust in this, that the lamb has the last word. And the lamb is worthy. And the self-giving love and mercy of God will not stop, as I so often pray in a benediction, until his work is finished in us. And so John the Revelator, exiled, wondering where things are going, steps through a door and is reminded, by the way, I'm really concerned about you, John, but it doesn't really revolve around your navel. It's actually my story, and you're in it, which doesn't make you less important actually so increases your importance because now you have a part to play in the divine narrative of the one who is seated on the throne. But he also, in his tears that are out of control, is reminded that the lamb that was slain is worthy to open the seal and unroll the scroll, and he will not stop until he draws us to his glorious purposes as we look to him are called according to those purposes. Amen. And so this morning, uh, we haven't prayed yet on purpose. We worshiped, 
And by the way, if you come to worship and you think, I really didn't like those songs today, they weren't really for you. In fact, every time you say that, you just expose the fact that we've made you the center. God is the audience today. The things we have sung and said are a reminder that he is the one on the throne. But I know that there is so much heaviness and weightiness and brokenness. And when we step into this place of worship, we are reminded that there is one on the throne, but we are also reminded that we hear lion, thanks be to God, but we see lamb. And the self-giving love of God wants to keep drawing you, drawing us into his purposes. And so this morning as we go to prayer, I know that there are a lot of needs and a lot of places in the world and in our own lives where we want to offer those things up to God. But we are here today to be reminded there is one who is worthy to open the scroll. And so this morning I would invite you, if you feel led, to come and to worship and to offer the needs that you have, the pieces that you have to the Lamb who is drawing us to his conclusion. Lord, I come, I confess, bowing here, I find my rest. And without you, I fall apart. You're the one who guides my heart. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you Every night I need you My one defense My righteousness Oh, God, I need you These guys are going to get us in the right key there it is. I, I know that it can be um, an intimidating thing to confess what we just sang. In a culture of self-sufficiency to confess that we need somebody, something. But I would just say again, before we go to prayer this morning, some of you may be chapter four where you realize this morning, oh man, my life centers right here. And, and it is not going very well and it is not making me the right kind of person. This may be the morning to confess, you are on the throne. Make of my life what you will. But again, this morning, this, this has been a challenging week, um, challenging month, difficult years and maybe stepping forward and leaning on this altar is it's just a confession that you're, you are leaning on the lamb and trusting that the lamb is worthy and so as we sing this morning I'd, I'd invite you to come let's sing it one more time Look. I confess
Almighty God, would you, would you take us in our imaginations right now through a door that is not a long ways off. It is, it is right near us. Would you allow us to be able to step through and to see that you, the almighty, inexpressible, eternal one, that you are on the throne. It is not the, the 12 tribes, it is not the 12 apostles, it is not the church that's even on the throne. It is you. It is not creation as much as you love it, as, as much as you have given yourself for it. It is not even creation itself on a throne. It is you on the throne. So be the center. And today we come to realize and to confess, worthy is the lamb that was slain that it is Christ, the Lamb, the self-emptying one, the one who meets us in our shame and pain, the one who forgives our sins, the one who makes all things new. It is the Lamb that is worthy to unroll the scroll. And so this morning we come with so many needs. We, we pray God today for some brothers and sisters who are facing cancer, facing surgeries this week, recovering from surgeries recently. We pray for Doug this week and for Debbie as they both celebrate but also grieve the loss of the most significant person in their life. We pray for their families and their grief. Oh God, we, we pray for just this awful, violent, broken, terrible, heart-wrenching situation in Ukraine, and it has made us aware that that's not the only place where that kind of stuff goes on, and, and so we pray for those who've lost, and we pray for those who have been uprooted from everything they have known, and some who are even coming to this community. May we be instruments of grace in their life, as Danny encouraged us today. May the self-giving love of the Lamb be the hope for their future to unroll the scroll and to lead them to the beautiful things that you have for them. And we have so little conception of what it means to imagine that the Lamb can be victorious, that self-giving love actually is the thing that makes all things new. And we know that's complicated and difficult and challenging, but it is what we confess. So make us reflections of that today. I pray for some who are at this altar who've come with deep needs and burdens, and I'm so grateful that you know their situation in such detail, better than they even know themselves. I, I pray that you would give them wisdom and guidance, but this morning I pray most of all that deep in their being you would give them the knowledge and affirmation and the conviction that you know and are able and you are at work drawing them to your purposes. And so draw them today, redeem them today, sanctify them today, for they need you, we need you today.
how we need you. And so work in our midst. And for everything that you do, until you make all things new, for everything you do, we will give you honor and glory and power and praise. And we will join that chorus that sings hallelujah to the Lamb. For it is in the name of the Lamb that we pray this morning. And God's people said, amen, amen. Would you stand with me? Let's, let's worship together.